Apologies. Oh my gosh. You're listening to Aggies, a Fargo recap podcast from Minnesota Public Radio. We're here to provide an authentic Minnesota perspective on a show named after a city in North Dakota. I'm Tracy Mumford. I'm a producer for Minnesota Public Radio News. I'm Jay Gabler from The Current. We're going to talk all about Episode 9, the penultimate episode of this third season of Fargo. And stick around, because after we talk about this episode, we're going to talk with Craig Robleski, who's one of the cinematographers on the show Fargo. And he tells us all about shooting that amazing Episode 8, The Hunt Through the Woods. Oh my gosh, yeah. If you're wondering why Fargo looks so beautiful to watch, it's this guy. So stick around. All right, penultimate episode, Aporia. Is that how you say it? I do not know. <laughs> er, okay, correct us, Twitter. But it's an irresolvable internal contradiction or the expression of doubt. Yeah, and I guess we were both wrong in our theories about Gloria and her challenges with technology. But at least I'll say this, Tracy. It seems like Gloria actually shared your theory. That she was a ghost. She maybe thought she didn't exist. <laughs> Although then we learned that all it took was just a hug. So we had a Mr. Rogers moment. Um, but let's start at the top with a decidedly un-Mr. Rogers moment. Yeah, kind an- of a deadly hug. Yeah, another murder. Uh, if you thought the body count in this season was not going to inch up in the last two episodes, this uh, this showed you that they're ready to play. So we see this sad man just going about his daily routine, uh, sprinklers going off in the middle of winter. This is a real thing that happens here. And uh, he gets slaughtered right in front of his fridge with a piece of glass and his blood mixes with the milk. Uh, You know, just a sly nod to the blood in the snow thing that Fargo is known for there. I'm not going to say that Marvin Stussy was asking to be stabbed in the neck with a shard of glass by watering his lawn when there was still icy snow on the lawn, <laughs> but I didn't love that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so Marvin Stussy goes down with uh, Mimo grabbing him from behind, and of course, in a, the stabbing that evokes uh, the uh, Ray killing for reasons we're going to start to figure out. Right. So clearly uh, they have it in for people named Stussy trying to cover the tracks of Emmett, who last we saw had surrendered himself to the police station. So you get the sense that Varga and his henchmen are trying to undo whatever Emmett might be doing. Yes. And we learned that his name is Marvin Stussy because apparently the fictional St. Cloud paper uses address labels on the newspapers. It's charming. And people read newspapers in the world of Fargo, which I love. They sure do. Read the news, people. And so then we cut to Gloria interrogating Emmett. And this is kind of this crazy scene. We learn a lot more about both of them in it. They really open up to each other in this strange way. And Emmett is trying to confess to Gloria, not just Ray's murder, but like all of the burden he has carried about Ray his entire life, how he's treated his younger brother um, and how he tricked him when it came to the car and the stamps. That wasn't just Ray's delusion. It really happened. And Emmett asks, he says, if anyone comes claiming to be my attorney, don't let them in. Anyone, I am here on my own proxy, as he puts it. Uh, Don't let anyone else in. So clearly he is concerned that Varga and his goon squad are going to show up and try to spring him. He has this heartbreaking line. um, Do you think there's a special level of hell for people who kill their loved ones on Christmas Eve? 
Emmett, I, I think you might be right. Yeah. You know, the other thing I noticed in this scene is that not only is Emmett alone, Gloria is alone. And where my mind immediately went is, okay, she's got the recorder going here, but if something was to happen to Emmett, and if just theoretically that recording was to be stolen or fail, it would be just Gloria's word that Emmett had confessed. But it, it turns out that's not the twist that this episode is going to take. Yeah, it takes a couple of them, though. So uh, we leave the interrogation room. We go to uh, Varga and his headquarters on the semi-truck. They're packing up. Um, they know that the pieces are about to start to shake a little here. They need to get Emmett out of the police. They need to figure out their next plan. They need him to sign some paperwork is what they really need. Yeah. Varga and his goon squad are moving to stage four, moving forward with this plan to counteract whatever Emmett is in that sheriff station saying and hitting the road. And have you noticed how Varga's goon squad just keeps expanding for so long? It was just Mimo and Yuri. And now every episode, it seems like Varga's got more bad dudes. Oh, and this was interesting. Uh, The guy that we were calling Pig Boy from last episode, R.I.P. Pig Boy, actually has a name. His name is Gollum which is like another throwback to the Jewish mythology and Jewish history that has been running through the season. So um, sorry, pig boy, we didn't know that your name was Gollum last season. We know that now, but you're right. It expanded with him and now it's expanding with these other guys who are following Mimo in a separate truck. And I thought we were going to have kind of a throwback to the siege of the police station in season two here when they roll out with all their stuff. But if that was what they were planning, they definitely got interrupted. Yeah. So if there's any throwback here, it's to that scene where Ray and Nikki were stalking Varga and Yuri and Mimo, and Ray was ready to make a move. And Nikki's like, no, you got to wait for your play. And the moment has arrived for Nikki to make her play. While the semi is stopped at a red light, Nikki smashes the window, throws a grenade through the window, prompting Mimo and his co-pilot to jump out of the truck. And meanwhile, Mr. Wrench opens fire on the car following, also one of Varga's cars. The two of them break into the truck, steal a laptop and some files, and... Well, they drive it away. That's right. They drive the truck away, um, which is great. They take it to this junkyard. Like, you just get the sense that they have been planning this for a long time. When they're searching the truck at the junkyard, they seem to know exactly what they're looking for, exactly what they're doing. Like, they have taken their time, and they leave it in the junkyard with kind of the looming crane in the background, so you know it's about to get scrapped. That's their plan anyway. I love that gorgeously atmospheric wrecking yard. There's some great locations in this episode. Maybe we want to talk to the location scout for this show, because they have found, like, some of the eeriest places in Calgary, including that sheriff station that is supposedly the county sheriff station. It was, like, such a ominously like brutalist concrete building i had to know with like strange skylights with strange skylights so i just googled brutalist architecture calgary and i found it it's the maryland heights school it's an elementary school in calgary can you imagine going to kindergarten in that terrible terrible terrifying building that does put a different spin on uh (laughs) the things that we see happen in the building knowing it's an elementary school My favorite part here is that the grenade was a paperweight. It said so on the bottom. Classic Nikki, super sly. And I know that I said Gloria and Winnie were my dream team for the season, but I take it back because Nikki and Wrench, absolutely, they have the best percussive soundtrack. 
and I really want Mr. Wrench's coat. I'm not going to lie. His his fringe just swings with justice. We have just seen Varga be invincible practically this whole season. So to see Nikki and Mr. Wrench turn the tables on him feels like very overdue comeuppance. And you know, shout out to David Thewlis for being so great in this show and also in Wonder Woman. He's one of the best parts of the movie, which is saying a lot because it's a great movie. But uh, anyway, he's great in that movie. He's great in this show. And we get another priceless facial expression from him in the next scene when we cut back to Stussy Lots and you see a shot oversized, poignant little toy parking lot still there with Sai in a coma. But Varga's at the office and just has this amazing shocked look on his face when Mimo comes walking in looking uncharacteristically unkempt. Yeah, super disheveled, doesn't have his headphones, obviously things have gone wrong. Um, And that's when Varga gets a call from Nikki herself, or as uh, Varga calls her, Swango, our recidivist. Uh, and she is painting her toenails on a hotel bedspread and giving him a ring to let him know uh, she'll take $2 million if he wants his files back. Yep. Sets up a rendezvous. Come alone, she says. Lets him know that she has his overseas bank numbers. And uh, she wants him to meet at the Clarion Hotel. But first of all, we get this sad scene of Emmett being booked into a holding cell. I don't think wearing a cardigan in a holding cell is maybe the best message you want to send when you get in there. At least he remembered to change out of his house shoes. That's fair enough. So back at the uh, scene of the Marvin Stussy killing in St. Cloud, Winnie is on the scene and gets a call from her friend Gloria. And the accents really get to 11 in this scene when the two of them are chatting on the phone. And uh, Gloria wants to know, she wants to know from Winnie, why did Widow Goldfarb give Emmett a full alibi, which apparently she did. We didn't know that, but it seems that the widow Goldfarb told Winnie and Gloria that Emmett was actually there all night on the night that Ray was killed. Yeah, Gloria is rethinking everything now that Emmett confessed because she doesn't understand these pieces that were throwing her off, and a big piece of that is widow Goldfarb. So she tells uh, Winnie that she's going to haul that woman back in, have another talking to about her. But Winnie, at the same time, tells her about the Stussy murder, which is Gloria's first clue that this Emmett confession is not going to go down as cleanly as she'd hoped. And we get a really nice scene with Gloria and her son, Nathan, who's growing up and might not want to go fishing with his mom this weekend. He might want to go to the mall. Okay, they have the same exact haircut, like down to the bangs. Like watching them sit next to each other, I was like, I don't know how I missed that before, but it's exactly the same. So we get this crazy shot that then is from the point of view of the top of the cruiser. Um, and we're back with Sheriff Damick, who is now investigating another murder, um, another Stussy murder. Basically, if your name is Stussy and you live in the St. Cloud metro area, duck because you're going down fast. And while Marvin Stussy's murder was reminiscent of Ray getting the glass in the throat, this one is reminiscent of Ennis uh, with his mouth Uh, glued shut right in front of his refrigerator and this was when Sheriff Damick was staring this corpse in the face they look eerily alike and I don't know if that was some weird omen about what might happen to the sheriff it was odd to see how closely they resembled each other and really the trick here for Mimo was somehow managing to kill George Stussy by I'm wincing, gluing his mouth and nostrils shut and getting him, but getting him to die in the same hyper erect posture that Ennis died in. George Stussy just looks like he's having the worst day of his life, as obviously he was, but uh, sitting straight up and as Donnie observes with his own wince, I think he pooped. 
So they get a clue with this case, too, though, that there was a maroon Cadillac seen leaving the scene. And they head out to track that down, which they do. They find it at a gas station with a guy who looks not just a little bit like Mimo, um, who does not seem surprised at all that they are arresting him. About time, he says. Yeah, wearing a red jacket, driving that maroon Cadillac. And he's an Asian man, but not Mimo. So we go back to the uh, the sheriff's office here, and the widow Goldfarm has arrived for her interview. Gloria has summoned her. Um, she's definitely my style icon of this season. The hair, the coat, the car, like the widow has a thing going on. And she sits down with Gloria, who's kind of trying to poke holes in the alibi that she gave for Emmett, especially considering Emmett confessed. Like she knows that the widow Goldfarb is lying. And we've had like a hint here or there that the widow might have connections beyond just the storage business but she was so varga in the scene it was crazy she's dropping foreign phrases oh quel dommage you know dropping her french uh when gloria asks her where she's from she says why does it matter which is so reminiscent of the answer that varga gave her when gloria was asking him i mean i was just getting like this is not subtle right like the widow is totally tied into whatever Varga is coming from. Or, I wondered, she revealed that she came from, or at least what she said is she came from St. Louis. And you know where my mind went when I heard that? You wonder if she has any connections to Mike Milligan's friends in, in Kansas, Kansas City. City. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It was strange. If it is not a connection to Varga, then the overtones were so strong. I don't know. It would be weird. Basically, they kind of, Gloria and the widow, tangle a little bit about the alibi, but she doesn't really make any progress here. Neither of them really gives anything up. And they're interrupted by all of the forces pouring back into the sheriff's office because, uh, as Donnie tells her, the manhunt's over. She's like, there was a manhunt? It's like, oh, yeah, for 30 minutes. Chief Damick is just so triumphant. He's like slapping the chests of his of his uh, cops, and he's just so proud. He figured it out. You mash a potato, you get mashed potatoes, right? It's Put the gravy on. And the simple, logical, intuitive, I guess, explanation is that this is actually a serial killer who hates Stussy's because he was molested by a man named Stussy when he was a child. So he has two signature M.O.s that he has used to kill four Stussies, and there is an abundance of evidence left in this guy's car that leaves Damick with no doubt whatsoever. This is it. He killed him. Emmett is obviously just guilty and making stuff up. You got to cut him loose. And I like this confrontation between Damick and Gloria because um, Damick, after like laying out his whole theory and everything he's found, says, those are facts. And Gloria says, hold on, I got different facts, which is the conflict that we've seen coming this whole season. Yuri's whole monologue about what is truth and different truth and all of that. Uh, we knew this was coming. So Goldfarb takes off and on her way out, Gloria asks her outright, are you covering for Emmett? Goldfarb says you can direct that question to her lawyer. Then we go to the bathroom of the sheriff's station. I don't know if we know where this bathroom is. It's some public bathroom. Varga's in a stall, grossly and loudly eating Rocky Road ice cream. Thank goodness we don't have to see what comes next. Right. But uh, yeah, Mimo knocks on the door and very politely doesn't come in. Just kind of yeah. gives a little knock and lets them know that, all right, it's worked. The cops have arrested the decoy, who we learn is, uh, as Damick put it, a three-time loser, basically a guy who Varga paid off to take the fall for this. Uh, Mimo says we're moving 
to stage five. And meanwhile, Nikki is waiting for Varga at the hotel, which now we learn why this hotel was selected. Those with attentive memories will remember where the Wildcat Regional was held. And that's why she's had Varga meet her there, which is a little heartbreaking detail. I was so glad we brought this back to bridge. I was just waiting for the show to bring the bridge element back in, and it comes roaring back here with Nikki's whole explanation of what she's up to. That's right, and she's like, don't you understand bridge? Like, there's 58 octillion options, and then you throw in the human factor. She says that strategy was always her strong suit. And finally, we're getting Nikki at the height of her powers here when she's tangling with Varga. I mean, before when she was interacting with Ray, who, you know, he was lovable, but kind of brought her level of play down. But here she can really cut loose. Yeah, and Varga is trying all of his tricks. So he's apparently filled this hotel lobby with other people wearing similar trench coats to his. So if something goes down, he'll be less memorable. He's got Mimo with a rifle trained on Nikki, which Nikki has anticipated. And he even brought a satchel of tea. Why would anyone accept tea from this man at this point? I was like, if Nikki does it, over. I'm turning off the TV. I will turn off the TV if one more person accepts Varga's offer of a beverage. Yeah, Nikki is no side. She is not going to be drinking that tea. No. He tries to, instead of paying her off with the $2 million that she requested, to actually hire her uh, to bring her into the fold of Narwhal, which I had forgotten that the name of his company, his like deep, big, bad organization is Narwhal. But okay. Um, You know what Narwhals do? They impale people with their teeth. The big thing that sticks out in front of a Narwhal, it's a tooth. It's a tooth? It's a tooth. So maybe connection to Varga's nasty teeth here, I'm just saying. Thank God you're here, Jay. I had no idea. (laughs) And so he keeps offering the craftier Nikki gets. The more she lets him know how much she's backed him into a corner, the more he tries to tack zeros onto her, you know, hypothetical paycheck if she were to join him. She says, I want to hurt you, not be your pet. Again, with the cat references, which we also got earlier on when Emmett was talking about this car that he traded to Ray and saying, oh, you know, a car like that is just like catnap to a kitty cat. They're also at the Wildcat Regional site. That too. So she's not just a cat. She's a wild cat. And she can't be tamed. And she has more friends than Varga has anticipated, which seems like a big oversight on his part here. Because we quickly see that Mr. Wrench is standing behind Mimo from his position with the sniper rifle. So he's not going to get a shot off. Yeah, and unlike Varga, who seems to have as much help as he needs, Nikki really just has one guy, right? And she's like, ah, you didn't count all the pieces on the board, which apparently... He didn't. Not that that much counting would have been required. But it would have been up to two. <laughs> yeah, he, he underestimated her. And so, yeah, there is Mr. Wrench who uh, disarms Mimo and signals to Nikki that he has done so. And so she knows she's good. Which, if you are so excited about Mr. Wrench like I am this season, you should not miss this interview that the actor actually did with NPR back in 2014. We tweeted it out. The actor's name is Russell Harvard. And he is a deaf actor who is playing this role with, like, the best attitude I think he and Nikki again dream team so don't miss that interview with him it's super interesting so great to have him back and his theme music it's the best all that percussion give us all the drums Jeff Russo so Varga realized he's been outmaneuvered outplayed for this moment at the hotel and uh Nikki and Mr. Wrench leave triumphantly um giving him a deadline to bring all that cash monies and then we're back to the sheriff's office yes where Gloria is gonna have to let Emmett go and Emmett is just 
in total disbelief. And I love that at first he thinks that he's being given special treatment because he is the parking lot king of Minnesota. She's like, you're not getting special treatment. Someone else just confessed to all four of these killings. Right. It's that serial killer who has a thing for people with the surname Stussy. And we also learn that Emmett has confessed to the death of Ray, but has not said anything about Varga. So now Gloria, knowing that, you know, she's going to have to let Emmett go, says, so you want to tell me about uh, your associate who sells ladies' shoes? Because obviously this is him. And we get this creepy shot of Varga chewing that's superimposed over Emmett's head. Like he's literally has chewed him up and spit him out. I am going to be sad when the season ends. One thing I am not going to miss in my weekly media diet is close-ups of David Thewlis's mouth as VM Varga. Yeah, We've had I'm a lot of those. Very done with that mouth. And it's just this heart-wrenching scene where Gloria is letting Emmett go or really forcing him to go. And uh, we see that Mimo is waiting for him in the parking lot. Just so bold. After, like, the lookalike Mimo was arrested, there is Mimo just standing out there looking good again. He's got himself put back together and just grins at Gloria. And he knows that she knows and she knows that he knows that they can't do anything. In the car goes Emmett to hear a little aphorism from his friend Varga. Yeah, uh, the problem is not that there is evil in the world. The problem is that there is good. Because otherwise... Who would care? Do you think our producer Anna would cross-stitch that? Yes. <laughs> she, she says yes. You can get that on a pillow. Okay, great. Okay, I can't tell how we're supposed to feel about Varga's philosophizing at this point. Like, there has been so much of it. Are we supposed to be finding meaning in it? Or are we supposed to be realizing that it is so empty and useless? It's BS. He's right? obfuscating and justifying. I'm, yeah, I'm over it. Um, from there we go to the bar because what do you do when your murderer gets away for like the third time? You just got to drown your sorrow. So that's where Gloria and Winnie are, are meeting up for a drink. Yeah. And Winnie is glad to have a break from still trying to conceive with her husband. At this point, she says it has all the romance of two lumberjacks chopping wood. So she knows she's not supposed to drink when she's ovulating, but she turns to the bartender and says, Moscow Mule. And make it ornery. Right. Which, again, when we have our um, Aji's meetup, when we go to Calgary, when we go to the Bear's Den, that's what we'll order. Although I can't believe that we would be served a Moscow mule that doesn't come in a copper cup. <laughs> then, as if this felt like an effort to be like, no, no, that whole backstory with the sci-fi books wasn't wasted. Really, we swear Gloria's going to talk about it again. And she gives this like very unsubtle explanation to Winnie about the android Minsky and how he wandered for two million years. And all he could say was, I can help, but no one ever appreciated him. And Gloria's like, that's kind of me. Like, yeah, <laughs> it is. We had that moment, like we talked about at the start of the episode, where Gloria confesses to feeling invisible, like she doesn't even exist. Apparently, she has also noticed the fact that doors and automatic soap dispensers do not recognize her. And this has put her in such a state that she just really needs that Winnie hug. We've got the bond of the uniform, says Winnie. Plus, I like you. And that's all it takes. After that, she's able to go wash her hands in the bathroom like a normal person. <laughs> the censors recognize her. She didn't even have to wait for the end of episode 10 for this to happen. And then the last thing we get in this penultimate episode is a return to the IRS headquarters to our very aptly named LaRue Dollard, <laughs> our favorite agent, who has a fun little package waiting on his chair for him when he gets to work. But he stops. He's going to spritz his plants. He's going to, you know, make sure everything is just as it as it needs to be. 
be before he is ready to take his seat and discovers an envelope addressed to him, which makes me wonder, presumably this comes from Nikki. How did they know the name of this specific IRS agent who was investigating Stussy Lots? I have a lot of questions about how they have been pulling this whole thing. I mean, how did they switch Ray's car? How did they get all those crazy stamp pictures up on his walls? How did they know what the inside of Varga's semi-truck looked like? You know, it could have been on Varga's computer. There you go. The name of LaRue Dollard. So the in comes this envelope containing uh, what you might call an alternate set of facts regarding the uh, books of Stussy Lots and a thumb drive. It's the real books. LaRue Dollard, today is your lucky day. I hope that like the IRS is the triumphant winner in this season of Fargo. How are we not going to get a slow motion shot at some point in episode 10 with LaRue Dollard triumphantly walking through the doors of Stussy Lots. That's where we left it. There, There is a lot to tie up in the next episode. Or I guess they just won't and we'll be left hanging on a lot of things, which Fargo has done before. But we are clearly rushing to a climax. Something is going to go down. It's going to be big. Hopefully it won't be bodies stacked to the second floor again. <laughs> I don't know at this point. Maybe aliens. I don't know. Well, we'll be back with you to talk about it all when it happens. But first, I had a chance to talk with Craig Robleski, one of the cinematographers who works on Fargo. How would you sort of describe your job in layperson's terms? What what does it mean to be a cinematographer on a show like Fargo? Well, a cinematographer's job is essentially to translate the director's vision into reality, or at least our TV version of reality. I mean, I always use the analogy of the architect and the engineer. You know, the architect designs the building, but the engineer is the one who has to make it stand up. And that's probably the best analogy I can come up with is, you know, the director talks about their vision, but it's the cinematographer's job to work with the camera grip and lighting departments and all the departments, quite honestly, to bring that vision to life. So you're not the only uh, cinematographer who works on the show. Dana Gonzalez has also worked on several episodes. What uh, what determines who works, which cinematographer works on which episode? Well, we alternate. So while one director of photography is shooting, the other one is prepping. Dana did the whole first season on his own, and I came in at the tail end of season one to do some second unit work and then was invited back to uh, to be one of the main unit cinematographers for season two and three. So Dana has done all of season one by himself, and then I alternated with him on season two and three. He started all the seasons. So he does the first block, and a block is two episodes, where we shoot two episodes at a time. So Dana will do the first, third, and fifth blocks, and I'll do the second and fourth blocks. What are some of the things about Fargo that makes it more demanding than the average TV show to shoot? Well, the scripts are incredible, and, you know, I mean, we're always trying to rise to the level of the material because Noah's scripts are so amazing and so rich and detailed. You know, they they offer such an incredible playground. So that's one of the things that makes it more challenging is that the material demands a certain attention and a certain focus that not all shows do. And also our audience, you know, the audience pays a lot of attention to the show, as you know, and, you know, that requires us to be extra diligent to make sure that we're telling the story in the most accurate way possible. And apart from those elements, there's the, uh, the logistical realities of it's a show that shoots on location a lot. And every episode is essentially like a little miniature movie. So, you know, we don't have necessarily some of the efficiencies that another other series might have, like a police show might spend 
three or four days an episode shooting in one set, you know, in their police station set. We don't really have that. I mean, we're on the move a lot. Mm-hmm. We change sets a lot. We change locations a lot. And that makes it challenging logistically because you always want to maximize the time you have for shooting and not lose time to just moving trucks around and, and getting to where you need to be. Right. So you want to be totally prepared to have the right equipment, the right setup, the right lighting, everything should be ready to go so you can spend as much of that time on set or on location as possible getting the right shot. Exactly. You know, our, my job as a cinematographer is to set the stage for these incredible performances and, you know, to, to build the stage, we need the right tools. And that's, that's what prep's all about. Sure. So you've also worked with Noah Hawley on Legion. You've talked about how different that show is from a visual standpoint. What are some of the constants when it comes to working with Noah? Well, the true north for us is always story. It's always story and character, you know, and regardless of how confusing and how involved things might get, we can always look to that. You know, that's always what guides us is story and character. And in Noah's scripts, the story and character elements are so strong that it's like a map, really. I mean, you can never really get lost. I mean, that's sort of our GPS, if you will. But, you know, no matter how crazy things can get, we always have that true north. And on Legion, it was a show that was very different than Fargo in the sense that it took place in a very real world. And Legion largely took place in, in worlds that made us ask the question whether what's real and what isn't real. You know, some of the worlds were purely manufactured. Some of them existed in people's minds. Some of them didn't exist at all, <laughs> you know, these sorts of things. So it becomes, you know, uh, it can become disorienting. But, you know, as long as we have that compass point of story and character, we never really get lost. So we talked with the composer, Jeff Russo, about how the different characters have different musical themes. Are there specific ways you shoot the different characters to convey a sense of their personality? To an extent. I mean, we largely leave that to the incredible actors we have. I mean, they bring so much to the table. But, you know, there's certainly different ways we will compose the frame to put a person in the story. I mean, someone like Gloria, for example, there's a lot of times where she just feels overwhelmed with the world that's around her. And she doesn't fully understand it. You know, she doesn't understand technology. She doesn't understand necessarily the evil elements of the world. She's not naive about it, but she can be a bit of a person out of her time. So it was fun to play with this notion of putting her into shots in a way where she felt like a person who was kind of a small person in a big world. And that's an obvious example of how we did it. And there's other ways, you know, where we would change the camera angle to empower people or diminish people or you know, make someone larger or smaller in frame. Those sorts of elements are are ways that we can subtly do it. I mean, we never aim on Fargo to have the photography overtake the performance or the character. So, you know, we're very careful to not have the camera become too active a participant. I mean, the camera should always be a participant in the storytelling, but it's not always intended to be a participant in the story itself, if that makes sense. Sure, sure, sure. So what would you say are some of the specific visual hallmarks of the Coen Brothers style that you're thinking about as you're shooting this show? Well, the Coens shoot their films in a very classic way. And regardless of of the genre or the era or the type of story they're telling, there's certain visual consistencies that you notice if you go through their films. And, you know, point of view is very important to the Coen Brothers in terms of whose point of view it is. And that's very important to Noah as well. You know, whose scene is it at the start of the scene? Whose scene is it at the end of the scene? When does the point of view shift within that scene? And the Coen brothers are very strong in that as well. And also the way we lens the show. I mean, we tend to use 
shorter focal length lenses, which put the camera closer to the actors. It puts the camera a little more inside the story, you know, again, without being an overly active participant. You know, you never feel on Fargo like you're watching the story at a distance. You always feel like you're in the room with these people experiencing it, but in an objective way, not in a way, you know, we're editorializing the story with the camera. I mean, we obviously make strong choices with the camera, but only if it's driven by story. We never want to be showy just for our own sake. So from a viewer's perspective, you experience a shot differently or saying if you see a shot that was created by a camera that was sort of closer to the action with a shorter lens versus a camera that was further back. Yeah, it's a subconscious thing. I mean, it's sort of the equivalent of, you know, if you're having a conversation with someone sitting across the table from them versus having a conversation with someone across the room. There's a subconscious relationship that the audience has with the camera you know, even if they don't understand focal lengths and don't understand, you know, the difference between a 29 mil and a 100 mil, there's a subconscious element there where people have an understanding because essentially our eyes are our cameras as human beings. And we understand these relationships. And we know that when we're having a conversation with someone three feet away, it feels different than if we're having a conversation with someone 10 feet away, you know, because our eyes kind of have built in zoom lenses in them where we're always trying to get to focus on what it is that's important to us. And we do the same thing on Fargo with our lenses, where we're always trying to put the audience's focus in the right place. And we do that with shorter lenses, which can sometimes make it more challenging because a longer telephoto lens makes it easier to isolate elements. But we do it through composition and lighting and staging of the scenes to make sure the audience's focus is in the right place. Right, because with a shorter lens, you'll see more of what's in the background. Exactly, and that's really important as well, because the landscape and the, the surroundings are as much a character in Fargo as the actors are in a lot of ways. Where these people live is very important, because it plays a role in how they view the world around them, and it's important to know that essentially a lot of the characters on Fargo are smaller individuals in a bigger world, and sometimes a world they don't fully understand. So landscape and the shorter lenses work together to place the audience and the characters in a world so that we always have a sense of place to the show, which is really important. Yeah, definitely. Well, speaking of landscape, so one of the episodes you worked on this season was episode eight, which is an mm-hmm. incredible episode as Nikki and Mr. Wrench try to escape through the North Woods. It was a beautiful episode, also very literally dark in, in a lot of scenes. There was sort of a lot of action that happened in shadow. Can you talk about shooting that episode? It was an incredible experience shooting that episode. Um, you know, reading the scripts, you know, I always try to read the scripts the first time just as an audience member and just enjoy the story. And then, you know, the second and third and fourth and tenth time, you're reading it with an eye to how you're actually going to do it. You know, and anytime you see a lot of night in a script, it becomes a challenge. And then when you see night in the woods, that becomes an even bigger challenge because it's difficult to get light into those environments. I mean, the reality is if you're in the woods at night, it's pitch black dark, but, you know, we can't present that to an audience because, you know, no one would understand what's going on. So it's always a matter of finding that balance between what we call movie night and real night, you know, where it's it's dark, but there's still enough light that the audience can understand what's happening. So, you know, that was challenge number one. And then obviously the logistical challenges of finding these locations and making sure that we can actually get into them and shoot there. You know, because TV schedules are tight. I mean, we're you know we don't have endless amounts of time to do this work, and and not losing time to logistics and just trying to get into a place is really important. You know, we want to have these places be very accessible. So you know, 
to the audience, it looks like we're in the middle of nowhere. But you're, if you're on the set, you know, generally you can turn around and within 50 feet, there's a bunch of trucks and their own equipment and all of that. So that's the challenge of it. But that's the fun of it, too. I mean, we director Mike Barker and I spent a lot of time walking around the woods trying to find the right locations. And and uh, it was just so much fun to shoot. I mean, it was it wasn't easy by any stretch because, you know, shooting nights is hard. And, you know, we spent a lot of time driving to work at the sunset and driving home at sunrise but the results are all there on the screen. If shooting nights is always a joy. It can be hard on the crew. Yeah, I imagine. Are there any other shots or scenes or episodes this season that you feel just especially proud of, where you feel like you really you really nailed it and got a great result? Well, I feel episode eight is, I mean, it, it's my favorite because it. I, I love the carryover from episode seven to episode eight, where, you know, at the end of seven, you see what happens to the bus, but only from the inside and only from Nikki's perspective which, you know, leaves great questions in the audience's mind about what just happened, you know, because it comes as such a surprise in episode seven. And then at the start of episode eight, you see a little bit of the backstory of how Varga and his team schemed to make this happen, you know, to flip the bus over and get access to Nikki. So, you know, it was fun to kind of put those puzzle pieces together and create that sense of mystery. And, you know, as a cinematographer shooting nights, it's a blank slate. You know, you start with black and you can work your way up so you can really build texture into it. And, you know, a scene like the clearing where, you know, where they have the run in with DJ Qualls character. Ultimately he meets an untimely demise at the end of a chain. <laughs> you know, it was an incredible sequence to shoot and it was a lot of fun to work out. When we're mapping out these fight sequences and these action sequences, there's always a lot to think about and we generally work with our stunt coordinator guy Buse to map out the sequence and ultimately it becomes play fighting, you know, where we're all gathered in a in a room and in this case it was a, like an industrial space just near our studio, about as unglamorous as you can get. And we were just play fighting in there like a bunch of kids figuring out this sequence and you know we needed something to stand in for the stump so it was a garbage can you know, we flipped the garbage can over and that became our stump where we <laughs> staged the sequence around and it became this play fighting around this garbage can like a bunch of 10 year olds and it was so much fun to work out and then you know by the time we got to set we'd figured out all the beats and then it just became a matter of shooting it yeah you know, another location that must have been challenging to shoot, I'm guessing, but kind of ends up becoming iconic in this season is Ray's apartment, that garden-level apartment. You've got those little windows, but the light kind of shines down on him beatifically. Yeah, it was uh, the, the location they chose for that was this great old duplex apartment in a suburb of Calgary. And then our uh, production designer, Elizabeth Williams, built an amazing set on stage, which was the interior. In the spirit of the show, we always want to remain true to to what life is like. So, you know, she didn't scale up the windows and she didn't build the set in a way that wasn't realistic. It was essentially an extension of what the actual apartment looked like. And, you know, that just gives it a, a veracity that I think the audience feels subconsciously when they feel like it's a real space and, you know, when it doesn't feel like a studio set and you can see the ceilings and you can see the small windows and you know where the light's coming from. It just makes it real and it keeps it from pulling the audience out of the true story that we're telling, like the credits say. Oh, that's just great. Well, thank you so much, Craig, for taking time to talk with us. Really appreciate it. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. And keep up the great work on the podcast. All right. And the same on, uh, on this show and all the others. Thanks, Jay. 
Aw Geez is produced by Tracy Mumford, Jake Abler, and Anna Reed. Follow us on Twitter. We will be live tweeting the last episode. We're on Twitter at Aw Geez Podcasts. That's A-W-J-E-E-Z Podcast. Our theme music is by Minnesota band The Valdons, courtesy of Minneapolis label Secret Stash Records. Okay, then. Bye now. <laughs>